welcome 1001 listeners to the first of three interviews we're doing with the genealogical research team at Ancestry, which we're very proud to have as a sponsor for our 1001 network of podcasts. History is what we're all about here, and I believe that one of the most exciting and rewarding ways to learn history is through finding family ties, investigating family history, because their lives will tell you a lot about where you came from and what life was like in their times. One thing most of us find when researching our family histories is that our ancestors had it a lot tougher than we do. The further back you go, the tougher they had it, as a rule. As these stories are shared in the next three interviews, and in future Family Ties episodes, you'll get a true appreciation of the hardships our ancestors went through to give us the life we have now. Whether you think life today is cushy or hard, these stories will add some perspective. In this series of podcasts, you'll get the rare opportunity to meet some top-notch career professionals who work long hours doing what they love to do, breaking through the unknown to provide answers for families seeking relatives and ancestors, speaking in public worldwide about advances in research, teaching in conferences, sharing stories, researching for television shows like Long Lost Family, appearing on newscasts, doing consults, researching for films, and getting people excited about discovering their heritage. And most of all, they really care about people and family, and that's what makes the team at Ancestry special. Their stories are filled with history, and that's what we're all about here. So sit back with your coffee, keep your eyes on the road, and your ears on 1001. Here's our first of three 1001 Family Ties interviews. This one with Ancestry's Krista Cowan, nicknamed the Barefoot Genealogist, and she has hundreds of great videos available at YouTube. And we'll be beginning with her story of a Holocaust survivor named Tybor Teddy Rubin, the only Holocaust survivor to win the United States Congressional Medal of Honor. You'll be amazed at his story that I found and I think you'll find fascinating. And now, our interview. Welcome everyone to this first of our Family Tree Specials here at 1001 Heroes as we bring you one-on-one with some of the top experts and family researchers with Ancestry. Today we're with Krista Cowan, one of the top researchers with Ancestry, and she's going to share with us a fantastic story. It's a story of courage, it's a story of integrity, and it's a story that Krista has worked very hard to bring to the forefront. Krista, could you please share with us a little bit about your position with Ancestry, what you do, how you help people, and then we'll jump right into the story. So, yeah, so I am happy to be here. My uh, official job title is corporate genealogist. I've been with Ancestry for about 15 years. And for the last seven years, I actually have done a uh, weekly video series for Ancestry on the Ancestry YouTube channel called The Barefoot Genealogist. And so I have the opportunity to teach and speak and, and do research as well, which I love. Now, that's a YouTube show, right? The Barefoot Genealogist? It, it is, yep. You can find it on the Ancestry YouTube channel. Tell us how this story came to your attention and give us the background on it. Yeah, so Ancestry's research team, of which I'm a part, we have the opportunity to work with some of our marketing department and some of our public relations department. And last year for Veterans Day, we were asked to research recipients of the Medal of Honor. Of course, the Medal of Honor is the highest honor that the United States gives to soldiers. 
So we were researching the lives and stories of some of these Medal of Honor recipients for a commercial that Ancestry was putting together. And we came across a man by the name of Tabor Rubin. Uh, Tabor, of course, is his birth name. By the time he immigrated to the United States, he Americanized his name a little bit to Teddy. Uh, and so Teddy Rubin, and he is to date the only Holocaust survivor to ever, ever receive the Medal of Honor. Where was he born and how did he end up in a concentration camp? Yeah, so his story is um, heartbreaking, but just so filled with courage and just an incredible human being. So he was born in a little town in northern Hungary called Pasto. Um, It's about 100 kilometers north of Budapest. Uh, At the time, in 1929, Uh, when he was living there, there were only about 120 Jewish families. But of course, um, as the events leading up to World War II uh, and Germany's influence in Hungary started to roll over that portion of Hungary, his parents were concerned enough that when he was 13 years old, they sent him away with a group of Jewish refugees to Switzerland. Unfortunately, before they reached the Swiss border, the German guards caught them and Tabor and those that were traveling with him were sent to Mauthausen concentration camp. The unfortunate nickname for that particular location was the Bone Mill. And um, of course, anybody who's studied the Holocaust or um, has had the opportunity to visit a concentration camp has some glimpse into the horror of what happened there. Uh, The fact that he survived is a miracle. He was there for 14 months before being liberated by American combat troops. And the really, like, the first really touching part of the story to me is that when the GIs freed him, um, he made a vow that he would go to America and become a soldier uh, as an act of gratitude to those that had saved his life. Sorry, I get a little choked up. Just I'm, I'm so close to this story and the stories of others like him that the fact that Um, in that moment that that gratitude was so overwhelming to him that he made this promise to himself and to God that he would do this is just really moving to me. It's moving to a lot of people. It's moving to me as well. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, both of his parents uh, were killed in the Holocaust. So the fact that they sent him away, even though he ended up in a concentration camp, ultimately likely saved his life. And so in 1948, uh, as part of a resettlement program, Uh, Tabor and his sister were able to come to America as refugees. Um, Ancestry, uh, just this weekend, um, is launching the collection of records from what was formerly known as the International Tracing Service. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to share a little bit of history about that record collection. I wish you would. Please go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, So... Uh, There's this little town in Germany called Bad Arelson, and um, they became, as the Allied armies took over Germany, they divided it into zones. So there was the American zone, and there was the British zone, and there was the Russian zone, the French zone, uh, and each of those forces, each of those armies started to collect the records that the Germans had kept. And ultimately, with the help of the uh, International Red Cross and the Allied forces, they gathered all of these records into this archive in this tiny little town called called Bad Erlson. The Red Cross then started using those records and creating new records as they were 
identifying the refugees. So not just those who had been freed from Nazi concentration camps, but those who had been displaced by the war because their entire town had been destroyed or um, other as other refugees poured in uh, starting immediately following the war in 1945 and then uh, going up through the 1970s there were still uh, refugees in refugee camps throughout Europe and so the International Tracing Service uh, which is what it was called at the time they uh, have these records of individuals who are being relocated as refugees to countries around the world and so Ancestry is actually uh, has worked with the Bad Arlson Archive that the Arlson Archive is what they're now called um, and we have two very large collections of their records that are going to be published online searchable. And this is part of a philanthropic effort that Ancestry is investing in. We feel like these records are have very significant cultural importance. And so anyone can access them on Ancestry free. There's no subscription required to access these two record collections. And the first one is uh, the registration of foreigners and German persecutees dating from 1939 to 1947. Wow. And then the second collection is called Africa, Asia, and Europe Passenger Lists. So that's where the people were going to from Europe. Passenger Lists of Displaced Persons from 1946 to 1971. And ultimately, uh, even after we had done this whole story about Tibor uh, in the Medal of Honor and, and that experience, which we'll talk about in a minute, we had been doing some searching in these new records, getting them ready to go online, and we actually found him listed in that passenger list of displaced persons with his sister uh, coming to uh, the United States as, as relocated refugees. So if you can imagine, you know, these two children, essentially, I mean, he was 13 years old when he went into the concentration camp. Um, it was about four years later uh, that he was sent to America. And um, so here's these two teenagers, you know, coming to the United States and so then in 1950, so by that point, he was uh, about 19 years old. He had tried, uh, this was a second attempt uh, to enlist in the U.S. Army. And uh, he was finally allowed to enlist in the Army. He was in Company I of the 8th Cavalry Regiment, and he was sent to South Korea during the Korean War. Unfortunately, he was stuck with a commanding officer with uh, some pretty heavy anti-Semitic um, beliefs, and that sergeant repeatedly sent Tabor on life-threatening missions, putting him right in the heat and the heart of danger over and over and over again, and that led to uh, Tabor being captured. He served as a Chinese POW for 30 months. So here's a kid who five years earlier had oh spent God. 14 months in a German concentration camp, and now, you know, hoping to be free, he comes to America only to find himself in a Chinese POW camp for two and a half years. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, because he was not a U.S. citizen at the time, uh, he had been a relocated uh, refugee uh, who was basically countryless or stateless and uh, enlisted in the U.S. Army. Uh, part of that process, they could actually gain citizenship by serving in the military, but the Chinese did not recognize uh, him as a U.S. citizen because he was not. And so they tried to send him back to Hungary and he refused. Every attempt they made to send him to Hungary, he refused and he stayed in the prisoner of war camp and uh, ended up being something of a caretaker for his fellow soldiers. Ultimately, he saved the lives of 40 men 
in that POW camp. And that just, that just amazes me that here's this young man who has that kind of courage and that kind of humility and that kind of foresight to just take care of these men who are part of a country that has not yet fully accepted him uh, into citizenship. He actually later in life would say that in spite of all of that, the two and a half years he spent in the POW camp in China was easier than the 14 months he had spent in the concentration camp at Mauthausen. So, Unreal. Uh, Unreal. When, yeah. did, when did his story first become known? Um, you know, he, um, this, is, this is just crazy. So that was all in 1950, right? And there were multiple attempts over the course of the next 50, 55 years to award him the Medal of Honor from the, from the men whose lives he had saved in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, however, because of that anti-Semitic sergeant, um, he, that sergeant would not submit any of the nominations, and it had to come with the approval of a commanding officer. Uh, so in 2005, shortly before that, there was a U.S. Army investigation into racial discrimination in awarding medals. Uh, it was directed by Congress, and ultimately it resulted in him receiving the Medal of Honor from President Bush uh, in 2005, 55 years after his service. And, uh, and I just I love that we finally, um, as a country, recognized the service of this man. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away in 2015, so... I uncovered this story a couple of years too late to meet him. I would have loved to have to have met him and heard some of his stories firsthand. But what we've been able to put together of this story of this almost forgotten World War II hero has really changed my perspective on um, on a lot of the things that some of these servicemen go through and and that some of these European refugees went through. There's there's so many factors to this story, but what courage it took, and what just undying faith uh, this yeah. guy had, and that he he stayed there. He could have gone back to Hungary, but he stayed yeah. there in that Chinese prison camp to help his fellow soldiers because he figured that where he that was where he was needed most. And yeah. that kind of sacrifice, most people would say, "I'm out of here." But that that kind of sacrifice is just incredible, and it's yeah. very heartwarming to know that he was finally finally recognized and given the Congressional Medal of Honor, as he certainly, certainly deserved it. Um, yes, absolutely. What, a, what an incredible story. Whew. Tell us about some of the other things you've worked on, stories that you'd maybe like to share with us uh, of how you've discovered family and ancestors. Yeah, so... It's hard to beat this one. I, we're not going to try to beat it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to lessen the impact or the importance of um, Tabor Rubin's story. Uh, I do just want to say, though, that um, his story is not singular, that there are stories to be found in everyone's family history. Um, I have been involved in my own family history research for more than 30 years. Um, I have the opportunity every Sunday night. I live, uh, I live in Utah. My parents live in Portland, Oregon. And every Sunday night, my dad and I get on the phone at about 930 at night and we spend about three hours on the phone together working on our family history. Wow. And we've done that now for almost three years. And in three years, we've only missed three Sundays. Uh, <laughs> and, that, and that's with my travel schedule and his travel schedule. We just still manage to make that connection. Keep that time open. And yeah. It's, it's, a, it's it, like I, I don't know if this word resonates with your listeners or not, but we have decided that that is a sacred time and nothing else is going to interfere with that. And uh there's some beautiful things that have come out of that. One is 
we have discovered this deep love for our ancestors and for all that they went through and all the choices. And some of those choices um, may be as fantastical as the choices that Tabor was faced with, but some of those choices are just daily choices of continuing to move forward and live life to the fullest and you know, all the choices that they made ultimately are what led to me and the choices that your ancestors made led to you. And so to come to know and understand that really gives you this perspective on life that you are just a chapter in a much larger story. Good and, and as you discover what the chapters were that came before you, I think it helps you write a more meaningful story for those chapters that will come after you in this book. Yeah. Um, and and that has been something that has been driven home to me with this time with my father. And then also a family history has the power not just to help you gain that perspective, but it has changed the nature of my relationship with my dad. Um, we have become closer. Uh, last year for my birthday, he sent me a card. And for the first time in my life, he called me his friend. Um, and, and that's really meaningful to me. So, so family history has a lot of power. And it doesn't matter if the stories are fantastical or simple. Uh, the power is still there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. My search into genealogy, which which your team has helped with a lot, has really been an emotional one for me. And it's made me ask a lot of questions uh, about myself. And one of those questions is, what can I pass down to my children and my grandchildren? What will I leave for their generations? Will I pass yeah. leaving nothing? Or will I pass and be able to leave something. As I think about that, I'm trying to think of ways that I can really have a positive effect on their lives and give them something to remember and smile about. Yeah, yeah. It does make you reflect on those things, for sure. <laughs> Where did the Cowans start? Where did that family come from? Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> I Loaded question. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. I'm a fifth generation Los Angelino on my dad's uh, Cowan line of the family. Um, prior to that, the family was in Ohio and then uh, Pennsylvania, just two generations before that. Uh, and so my oldest known Cowan ancestor is just a third great grandfather, uh, which in the scope of family history is not really all that long ago. Uh, he was born in about 1780 in Ireland we believe in County Down, Ireland, okay. uh, and immigrated to the United States. Uh, the first record we find of him here in the United States is actually during the War of 1812, which was really just part two of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Um, because he was Irish, he was a British subject, and so he had to um, sign a paper renouncing his allegiance to the crown <laughs> if he expected to remain living in the United States during the War of 1812. Yeah. And so we do find that record of him. But he then went on to father 13 children. Uh, one yeah. became a United States congressman. One was a U.S. postmaster. Two were doctors. Um, and uh, they have since spread throughout. I've traced, uh, I've undertaken a project to trace the descendants of all of those 13 children of this immigrant ancestor of mine, and he, uh, uh, we think we're up to about 12,000, <laughs> and they are, they are in 47 states and seven countries around the world now. So. Well, that covers it pretty well, and yep. I, I imagine the other three states will be hit pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> I probably just haven't found the people you, in those states you yet. just haven't discovered it. And it's fascinating to me how DNA has accelerated that. I've but like I said, been engaged in family history work for about 30 years. 
But uh, just in the last seven years since Ancestry introduced the Ancestry DNA test, uh, what you do is you, you spit in a tube and then all of a sudden you get this list of DNA matches. Other people out of the 15 million people who've tested with Ancestry who share measurable amounts of DNA with you. And if they have a family tree, you can usually very quickly figure out where you connect. And so we've discovered, oh, probably about another hundred descendants that we didn't know about before from this particular ancestor through the DNA testing, which is, which is fantastic. Have there been any times when you've brought together missing relatives? Have you worked on yeah. any cases like that? And could you maybe <laughs> tell us about one? Yeah, so I am actually the lead researcher for the TV show Long Lost Family. Oh, well, then you so, can give us a couple. Yeah. I've got all the time you need. <laughs> um, so for, for those of your listeners who aren't aware, Long Lost Family is a TV show on TLC. Uh, season three uh, aired just this last spring. Each episode of the television show is two individuals who are looking for biological family. So it could be a child who was placed for adoption looking for a biological parent, maybe a parent who placed a child looking for that now grown child. Um, sometimes it's two siblings who were in the foster care system at a young age and got separated. Um, and oftentimes DNA is the only way to solve that mystery for them. Uh, sometimes there's pap the paperwork no longer exists or they come from a state where that um, paperwork is not available to them, or in some cases it was, you know, nefarious things that, uh, you know, paperwork, birth certificates and such were forged in the case of gray market and black market baby rings. And so through DNA testing, we're able to very often um, make the connection with the biological family. Now, of course, not every biological family wants to appear on television. So, um, so for a season, my, my team will work on several hundred cases uh, that then, you know, 20 or 30 make it actually onto your TV screens. Um, but because of my involvement in that work, I have become a little bit of a magnet for people who are looking for some of those, some of that. Um, and I had the opportunity just this last year to help a local young woman. Um, she had um, been placed for adoption at birth uh, as an infant, and her parents that raised her uh, were given some basic information about the birth mother. They were told how old she was. Um, they were told that she was from Texas, but that she came here to Utah to give birth to the child, that she was a, you know older teenager, and that they were given no information at all about the birth father. They were told the birth mother's name, but unfortunately it was a very, very common name. So when the daughter turned 18 uh, and decided she wanted to know more about her biological family, and it's not always about connecting with the birth parents. Sometimes it's just about knowing their heritage. Every one of us has that desire in us to some degree or another. And unfortunately, adoptees are denied that right. And I am of the firm belief that everybody has a right to know their heritage. Yeah. They don't have a right to a relationship. Like that's of the choice of the individuals involved, but they do have a, a right to that knowledge. And so they had sent out letters to everybody in the phone books in Texas that they could find that had that name. <laughs> but like I said, it was a common name. They got back some lovely replies from some women saying, I wish it was me, but it's not. <laughs> um, and so they had undertaken this search for about 20 years. This young woman is approaching 40 now. And uh, so they came to me and they said, you know, she's taken a DNA test. Can you just look at her, her results, the DNA matches she has and help us with it? And very quickly, I was able to identify uh, 
both of her birth parents. And, and the interesting twist to the story is that her birth mother was not, in fact, from Texas. Uh, that was just a story they had told. Uh, she was from right here in Utah and had, in fact, gone to the same high school, of course, 17 years earlier, uh, that the, the, this young adoptee had wow. gone to. And there were some connections with the family uh, locally here that uh, were just really fascinating. And they have since uh, met. The birth mother did agree to meet with her. Um, she has had, she is, the birth mother has gone on to marry and have other children. And so this young woman is taking her own children um, to meet uh, the birth mother and her half siblings and uh, introduce the grandchildren. And, and her oh, adopted wow. parents, just a wonderful couple, have been so supportive of her through this whole process. And, you know, I, I love it when families realize that when, when more love is available, it doesn't divide, it multiplies. <laughs> um, and so they don't feel threatened by that. So yeah, I, I get the opportunity to be tangentially involved in some of those stories. And sometimes like in the case of this one, I get to hear after I give them the information, I get to hear the follow-up stories. And sometimes I never do. Um, and that's okay too, because it's not my story. Did she choose to do that on television for a show, or is she going to meet she them off of the screen? Yeah, yeah she, that was actually not for casting for a television show. She was a, a, a family member of a good friend of mine, and, and so that's how I was connected with her. You know, as it turns out, I have a, a niece uh, whom I love dearly out in Utah who was adopted. Her records were sealed, and she wrote a letter to one of those television shows, and they got back to her. And they said, we have found your brother, and he would very much like to meet you. And she thought about that long and hard. They said, he does not know about you. That's, that's up to you. We're leaving that as your choice. If you would like to meet him, we'll, we're willing to fly you out, all expenses paid, if you'll agree to appear on our show as part of that reunion, or... We'll give you his contact information, and you can contact him and meet him at your own convenience. So far as I know, she didn't take up the offer on the television show, and I don't know if she said the courage to to make that connection with her brother yet. I need to ask her that if she has. I don't believe she yeah. has. So it's funny how different people will react. Yeah, um, everybody, and everybody has to kind of take it at their own pace as well. Um, I certainly um, am really proud to be involved in the television show, but we would never push anybody or exploit them to participate yeah. if they're not comfortable with that. We do have the skills and the experience to help people navigate that experience. Um, but if they don't want to do it on camera, that is just fine. There is nothing wrong with that. And if they want to take longer or uh, we've had um, individuals reach out to biological family members who have sometimes taken a year or two to just wrap their head around it and yeah. respond. And, you know, the, the adoptee in many cases has had their entire life to think about the biological family. For some of these individuals, particularly birth fathers, some of them didn't even know they fathered a child. And so, you know, give them a minute <laughs> to, right. to think about it and come to grips with it before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love being involved in, in that particular aspect. But, you know, I don't want to let that overshadow that um, even those of us who are not adopted, there are still some really great discoveries and connections right. to be made. I, um, I talked about doing that descendancy research for that Cowan ancestor of mine. I've done that with another third great grandfather of mine. Uh, like I mentioned, I was 
raised in California, and I moved to Utah after I finished college uh, to work here for Brigham Young University, and then, of course, I've been here at Ancestry for a decade and a half, and I discovered after I moved here that a third great-grandfather on my grandmother's side of the family uh, actually helped found the town that Lehigh, or the town of Lehigh, which is where Ancestry is headquartered, oh. and I became obsessed with him and obsessed with his life. And uh, his grandson is my great-grandfather, and I knew that particular great-grandfather. And so I felt this affinity to him, and I started, again, tracing all of the children and grandchildren. This particular um, ancestor who settled this place, uh, he had uh, 18 children and uh, 98 grandchildren, which... Oh, when I found that out, I thought, man, I wish I had asked my great-grandfather what that was like to be raised in a family where on just his father's side of the family, there were 98 first cousins. Christmases would 12. be tough. Right. And, like, and name recollection. Cousins. That's it. Let me see. You're uh, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, and, and I think about six of them were named after the grandfather, so there was lots of Samuel Mulliners running around. Um, but uh, as I started tracing the descendants of those 98 grandchildren, uh, I discovered that a college roommate of mine was actually one of the descendants. And so she and I had been college roommates 20 years earlier, and it turns out we were, we were cousins. <laughs> and it gave me an opportunity or an excuse to call her uh, hadn't spoken to her in about seven years. And when I contacted her and we were able to reconnect and I said, you know, did you know that this man was was also your ancestor? And she had no idea. And so I was able to tell her a little bit about him. And she invited me to come out to her home. She now lives in California uh, to come out to her home and share with her young boys the stories of this man who immigrated from Scotland to Canada and then crossed the plains and settled a town in Utah. And just, you know, even just stories like that, uh, she knew that that would inspire her sons and wanted them to have that information. But it was a really special connection because, you know, she and I had spent a year of our lives together in, in college. So <laughs> pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> so can you think of any other uh, stories where you, maybe a story where you you had a wall and you just could that person just couldn't get beyond that wall and you were able to kind of crack that case. Have you ever had anything yeah. like that where you were Sherlock Holmes and you had a mystery to solve? You know what? Sherlock Holmes is kind of the right right word for phrase for it. Um, yeah, brick walls, that's what we call them in genealogy, are a very real thing. Um, and they can happen for a lot of reasons. Um, the biggest reason, of course, is sometimes just our own skills or experience. Uh, we have people all the time who come to us and say, oh, well, I couldn't possibly do ancestry or, or research my family tree because X, Y, Z. Um, in some cases, it's African-Americans who think that because of uh, what we call the 1870 wall, um, because of slavery, that there just aren't records. And the reality is, is that there are records um, and it's just a different skill set that's required to start to dig into them and piece it all together. Um, my Jewish friends, right, the, a lot of them feel like all the records were destroyed or lost. Um, I'm actually, um, I think the week this airs, I'll be in Cleveland at the International Association of Jewish Genealogical Societies annual conference. That's, that's a mouthful. mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's in a different city around the world every year. This year it's in Cleveland. Okay. And... A lot of them come to that week-long conference 
for the purpose of improving their skills. But one of the things that I've learned in my 10 or 12 years of attending that conference is that there are records that people thought were destroyed that are just now coming to light. Um, a couple of years ago at that conference, the archivist, the head archivist for the Ukraine came and she told a story about being approached by an Orthodox minister who had been remodeling his church and in the basement of his church, he had found boxes of Jewish family history records oh, wow. and they had been delivered uh, shortly before World War II. The local rabbi had gone to the local minister, the local priest, and turned these records over to this other member of the clergy for safekeeping and they'd been yeah. stored away in the basement and nobody knew about it. And so here we are 75 years later and these records are just coming to light. So the Nazis and couldn't so, find them and start connecting dots, right? Yeah, yeah. so they, they weren't just, the records weren't destroyed, they weren't lost, they weren't, yeah, they weren't confiscated, um, they were just hidden away. And I have come to believe, almost mystically, uh, in my involvement in family history, that if there are records that exist anywhere about your family and you want to find them, that eventually you will. Oh, wow. <laughs> eventually they will show up. <laughs> That's a pretty good attitude to have. Yeah. And you've had enough years with that organization, with Ancestry, to make that come true. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I have my own brick walls. My, uh, my biggest brick wall, it's, a, it's 40 years standing. Uh, my mom has a great-grandfather who uh, was an Irish immigrant and could never tell a, a story the same way twice. <laughs> and he told a lot of stories. Uh, his age ranged, uh, if you calculated how old he said he was at any given time, he was either born in 1831 or 1837 or 1842, depending on which story you believed. And he was either born in Ireland or Ohio or Iowa. <laughs> um, <laughs> they all kind of sound and, the same if you see all, all, say all right? three fast. <laughs> and if you say it with an accent, I don't know. <laughs> um, but immediately following this, he served in the Civil War, and immediately following the Civil War, he uh, went down to Arkansas and became a farmhand, and then ultimately the farmers disappeared, and he married the farmer's wife <laughs> and uh, had a few children with her, one of whom is my great-grandmother that I'm named after, and he lived to a ripe old age. But my grandfather died when my mom was 17, and his mom died when he was two. And so all the stories we have about her father all had come to us from different places, and we just didn't didn't know the truth. And so we've been slowly piecing together the records that tell the story of his life for 40 years. Uh, we finally got a hold of his Civil War pension file that gave some information. Um, we've finally located his enlistment records in Iowa. So he at least lived in Iowa at some point. Um, we are fairly certain that he came to Iowa from Ohio, but we just now came across some DNA matches that indicate that he may have actually uh, been born in Ireland, uh, like he said at one point, and um, just started lying about that because he didn't want to have to go through citizenship and he wanted to serve in the Civil War. And, and so he started telling people he was born in Ohio and that just kind of stuck. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're getting closer and closer to identifying. We think we know who his mother is based on this DNA match. And and if she is, in fact, his mother, she did not immigrate to the United States until she was in her 70s, which means he had to have been born in Ireland. So kind of exciting. <laughs> it, this now is you, a brick wall. Because 
has not just been punched through and come tumbling down. It's a brick wall. We've very carefully been removing one brick at a time. So you kind of you can kind of see through it a little bit, but you can't get all the yep. way through. Yeah. You mentioned the word mystical before. Do you uh, do you see any mystical connections from generation to generation? And maybe mystical is the wrong word, but do you see definite traits coming through or uh, methods of thinking or maybe ways of living your life that just seem to be repeated generation after generation or not? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, of course, there's the whole, you know, nature versus nurture discussion that happens in all sorts of, yeah. of circles, you know, psychology and science and um and to have it enter into family history is a really interesting debate. There are certainly, I think, things that people, ways that people live their lives that are entirely based on the environment that they were raised in. But uh, having worked so much with adoptees uh, and reuniting them with biological family members yeah. that they have never known, there are undeniable things that are, it's not just physical characteristics, it's tastes in music and choices of careers and, um, you know, interests. And I even worked with a family last year where uh, we reunited two sisters and they had named three of their children the same thing. <laughs> like, like just little things like that, that you're, that it's it, mystical is the only word I can use to describe it, but maybe it is something genetic. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So as you probably know, your team has helped me with research. I was adopted and they've helped me find uh, my biological family also helped me solve a lot of questions on my Hagedorn family, which which has always interested me ever since I was young. And I've always been trying to poke, poke through that wall. And I have a brick wall in 1812, too, that I'm trying to get past. And we're going to get there. But on the bio side, my first cousin knew my dad. Uh, and she's opened up to me. And, and she tells me my dad uh, loved to tell stories. He wasn't at all shy about doing that. And that was one of the main things that she remembers about him. He was a mentor to, to her uh, and just a consummate storyteller. And he ended up as an author, too. He was also an artist, which I'm not. Uh, I have trouble drawing stick figures and putting the arms where the arms <laughs> should go and the legs where the legs should go. But uh, I said, well, I, I said, said uh, I'm kind of a storyteller, too, <laughs> with 1001 Heroes and the other podcasts I do. And I've, I've found this to be a passion in my life that's... Uh, more exciting and more rewarding than anything I've ever done in terms of work. In fact, I don't call it work. I would doubt if I would doubt if you call what you do work. Although I wouldn't let Ans I wouldn't let Ancestry hear that, but <laughs> Yeah, I do like getting the paycheck, but no, I what I do is a passion and a joy every day. <laughs> we talked about your Sherlock Holmes moments. Maybe what was one of the most heart rendering uh, family connections you ever made or family discoveries you ever made was that was that in was that maybe in linking up siblings um yeah it's interesting when um there are some of us who i think just yearn to know more about who we are and who we come from and and i think like i said everybody has i think that in them to some degree or another but for some of us it is just a driving force um, I was raised in a family that was very uh, active in family history. We had family reunions. I, I knew all, I knew three of my grandparents. I knew three of my great grandparents. Uh, stories were always shared. Photos and family trees were always on the wall in our home. Um, and I think that fueled it for sure. But um, 
it's interesting to me when I meet another kindred spirit, somebody who just yearns to know more about their family history. And for whatever reason, they don't have the skills or the access to be able to make those discoveries. And in some cases, it's because they're adopted and those records are sealed. Um, but in some cases, it's because the record access is difficult, like for my Jewish friends or my African-American friends. Um, and so just this last year, uh, there's a I have a colleague. Her name is uh, Nika Smith. Uh, we do some contract work with her here at Ancestry, but she runs uh, she runs a podcast called Black Progen. And she is a brilliant researcher. And I've watched her over the last year uh, make some discoveries in uh, in property records and probate records in Louisiana that have connected her not just through slavery, but all the way back to Africa in some cases. Oh, wow. And watching her excitement uh, over that discovery and and the excitement, the ripple effect that that has made in the genealogy community um, around the discoveries that are possible for people of color is so exciting to me to see because I feel so passionately about family history yep. to have her stand up as an example that family history is something that is accessible to anyone who wants to get involved. Yes. Um, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you in conjunction with that one story, I had the opportunity last year with Ancestry to attend the Golden Globes gift lounge. They, they invited Ancestry to participate in that. And the celebrities were brought into a, a hotel suite and they were given a DNA kit and then they were invited to sit down with uh, one of us uh, and help start build a family tree. And this kid, he's about 6'2", uh, African-American. He portrays a football player in a popular television show. And I said, okay, let's start a family tree. Tell me what you know about you know, your parents. And we put them in the family tree. Tell me what you know about your grandparents. We entered his grandfather, his dad's dad into the tree. And then we got to his dad's mom. And I said, okay, what was your grandma's name? And he said, uh, um, I don't know. And I said, you, you don't know her name? I said, what did you call her? And he said, I didn't. I didn't. He said, she died in childbirth with my dad. Uh, my dad was the youngest of 10 children, and she died the day he was born. And I, he said, I'm embarrassed that I don't even know her name. And, he, and I said, well, is there anybody in your family who would know that? And he said, yeah, hold on just a second. And he called his dad, and he asked his dad, and then he got some basic information and so I entered her in the family tree with her name and her death date because that was all they knew. Nobody knew when she was born or where or how old she even was when she died. And sure enough, up pops one of those ancestry leaf hints. Yes. And it was a copy of her death certificate. Oh, my gosh. And it listed the cause of death as complications due to childbirth. But on that death certificate, it also listed her birth date and place and her parents' names. And so we entered that into this tree. And here's this kid, I mean, this big, tough football player kid. And I don't know how to explain the emotions he was feeling. He was choked up and teary-eyed, but he was bouncing up and down in his chair because he was so excited. <laughs> and he said, what else is there? What else can we find out? And uh, in the course of about 20 minutes, I was able to give this young man information about his grandmother and her parents and her brothers and sisters and I explained to him that some of those brothers and sisters were still alive. His dad had aunts and uncles who were still alive that nobody had ever met. And he just hugged me and he walked out and he was gone through the gift lounge for about an hour and a half. And about an hour and a half later, he came back, which he didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. There was another exit. He came back in and he walked over to me 
And he said, how is it that I am 30 years old and today is the first day of my life I have ever heard my grandmother's name? How does that happen? And Mm. he was so earnest that it just broke my heart. And I just thought, you know what? Every one of us is just one generation away from losing all of that family knowledge. Somebody dies and they take it with them. And so we have got to be better as a society and as families about sharing that knowledge. Um, And that's one of the reasons I'm so proud to work at this company is because we give people a platform and a mechanism to record that information. I have built a family tree and everybody in my family has access to it and they don't have to have a subscription to have access to the family tree I've built. And they can go in and see the information and the photos and the stories that I've collected so that that information doesn't get lost. So another young man doesn't have to say, how is it that I am 30 years old and today's the first day I heard my grandmother's name. Like, that's just heartbreaking to me. <laughs> yeah. The Ancestry product, the Family Tree product, is absolutely incredible. Once your team started to, to hit on some of the, the big ones for me, and those names started to fill in, there was a period of a couple of days when I was just cooking on those little green leaf hints <laughs> that you say that come up. So you plug in the right name, and all of a sudden you got seventeen hits. It could be everything from yeah. war record to to a ship's uh, passenger list to you name it. Oh man! And I was just it was I was just scratching the surface. I could I if I could I could spend full time uh, sixty hours <laughs> a week for the next ten years just getting the stories and the photographs. I mean, I haven't I barely touched the surface of all the information that uh, that your Ancestry Family Tree product uh, has done for me. It's very easy to use. I absolutely love it. And uh, yeah. if it's, it's habit for me. Now you can get in there and really find <laughs> out a lot. But it's exciting. You're, it you're, is, you're, seeing, yeah. you're seeing pictures of great-grandmothers and grandmothers and, and long-lost aunts and cousins. And, oh, it's just uh, it's fantastic. And getting their family yeah. stories, kind of understanding, you know, what they what their lives were like. And I think you said it early in the show, you know, we owe our existence, obviously, to them. We owe our lives to them. And in the past, as you go further and further back, life was tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. We really have it easy now. And those people were some tough cookies that we finally descended from. They put up with life the hard way. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) family history really does lend itself to some great perspective. And in my experience, a lot of gratitude for for what they went through and, and what that allowed us to to build on in, in our lives today. Krista Cowan, I want to thank you so much for the time you've given us today. I know our listeners are going to really love this show. They're probably all going to be trying to ask you how they can get this kind of career that you have because it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful being able to... Well, thanks uh, for having me. ...being able to enlighten people and help them with their search and bringing such a great perspective to history uh, and to all of us as part of the same... Uh, human race. Thank you so much for what you do. I have a wonderful time talking with you today. Would you be available to talk to in the future? Could we do another show like this? Yeah, absolutely. I would love it. And I do, uh, just if, if you don't mind if I share, if anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, Please. at Krista Cowan, that's C-R-I-S-T-A-C-O-W-A-N, at Krista Cowan. Uh, I do share little highlights once in a while when I come across a good story. So if they want to hear the rest of the story, uh, maybe you and I can do this again. <laughs> That sounds terrific. Uh, yeah. Start making some notes as you go along, and we'll we'll definitely <laughs> do this again. I want to hear some really good heart-wrenching stories, okay? Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
thanks so much for being with us today. And I wish you the very best. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I hope you enjoyed the first of this special 1001 Family Tie series with Ancestry. You can get it all started and get a special discount on a DNA kit by going to Ancestry.com forward slash 1001. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 1001. You'll be starting the adventure of your life, literally. Thanks for joining us. Keep an eye out for more 1001 Family Tie specials in the weeks to come. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.